0: It's 2020, and we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic. As of now, there's been a lot of memorable journalism on the virus's impact on our lives, but so far, at least, there hasn't been a lot of art. Should we expect that to change? While we don't know, there is a precedent. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger director. Dr. Rebecca Totaro is an associate dean and professor of literature in the College of Arts and Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. And for most of the 21st century, she's had what many might consider an unusual obsession. Over the last 20 or so years, She has collected writing that was done during Europe's Great Plague Epidemics, the years between 1348 and the first quarter of the 18th century, when outbreaks killed millions upon millions of people. She has published these writings and written about them in five books. The work she's collected includes poetry, pamphlets by civic and church authorities, and utopian novels that look at what life might be like in the future. What you don't find much of are plays. And that's one of the things we'll talk about, why Marlowe, Fletcher, Shakespeare, and most of the other great dramatists of the era avoided this topic like, well, avoided it like the plague. Professor Totaro talked to us recently from her office in Fort Myers, at a time when Florida was at the height of its battle with COVID-19. We call this podcast was pretty, though a plague. Rebecca Totaro is interviewed by Barbara Bogave.
1: You have written five books about this subject. How did that happen and
2: why? Yes, I have. Um, it was not a plan. I think the way a novelist describes characters taking over their work and writing the, the, the character rights itself. Once I started looking into plague in Shakespeare's time, one subject led to another led to another. And I felt that I just had to put, uh, examine each of those subjects. And as we know from COVID-19, unfortunately, very unfortunately, pandemic disease touches every aspect of lived experience. Mm-hmm. So five books is only a fraction of what's possible, not for me, for someone else.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's that I, I can, I really get how that could happen. But I'm I'm asking, I think, because It does seem like an overlooked subject. I mean, we we searched Mm -hmm. all the people who write about it, and they are not that many. And also the people who are alive in the midst of plague, like Shakespeare was, they don't seem to want to write about it. And scholars didn't really care to either. And given that it's such a rich topic, why do you think it's so overlooked?
2: You know, I was shocked when I was a grad student. This is when I kind of discovered it as a topic. And, and now we all know to be shocked as well living in this pandemic time that how can you escape it? But, but the reason I think it's been overlooked is a simple, strange side effect of disciplinary specialization historians had it in their purview, it was their domain. You know, the Black Death of 1348, there's your plague story, so why do you need to research much more than that? And it wasn't something that literary scholars were looking at, and the door wasn't even really open to thinking about historical context for literary works until about 20 years ago. So about 20 years ago, when I was looking into dissertation and starting this research, it was more acceptable to say, well, okay, Shakespeare's sonnets written in plague years, most of his tragedies written when theaters were closed. And then as far as science was concerned, you know, anything prior to the scientific revolution just isn't worth talking about when it comes to medicine and and the history of medicine. So that's another reason that I think it wasn't looked at. It seems
1: so different from now where everyone's writing their a lot of people are writing in their journals, you know, and blogging and people are writing about what they're experiencing and their their daily experience of this. Mm-hmm. And we also are seeing right from the start of this pandemic that you have this division in the world between the people who want distraction from it and just don't want to think about it at all and are just watching romantic comedies or something. And then there are a lot of people wanting to read plague literature and watch movies like Contagion and want to
2: dwell in that. What do you make of that? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I think you've kind of, I suppose the two camps, and even calling them that, and we know very well about polarization and what it does to people, which is it puts you in little boxes that are tidy and containable. And when you're undergoing trauma... What we do is we comfort ourselves in the way that we can, and sometimes painting ourselves into a box, whether it's the totally open box, oh, there's no need for a mask, there's no problem, versus the box, which is, I'm only going to order my groceries. Um, I, I think those are probably, I, I haven't looked at it in literature of, of Shakespeare's time, but I'm... I'm going to assume those were also categories that people painted them into. I do think it was less the case in Shakespeare's time for a couple of reasons, but um, the main one being that people knew their neighbors so that people could live the experience a little bit more and they weren't necessarily as saturated by, of course, by media.
1: Right. They were living it themselves. They didn't feel it kind of outside of their own experience.
2: Fascinating, wonderful fact is that There was no equivalent of a zombie apocalypse narrative in Shakespeare's time. (laughs) We go to the doomsday tale because, again, we don't know our neighbors. We haven't lived in the same community, the same village where families go back generations. And so, of course, we care for them. We reach out to them.
1: Oh, that's really fascinating. And I, I, we're going to talk a little bit about, it as opposed to those dystopian narratives, you had utopian narratives in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. time. But, but, but first, I do want to pick up on something you said right at the beginning, which is that once you looked into plague, it just led you down so many roads. You wanted to pursue them. And, and you also make this point that the plague is not just one thing. And we've been talking about it as if it's a monolith. Uh, you say in one of your books, it wasn't a static event And that it it makes more sense to look at the plague as a process and as a fact of life in Europe that touched everything human for almost 400 years.
2: Well, that's right. And and very unfortunately, it's taken until now, like now we get that because of COVID-19. There isn't a single aspect of lived experience that a pandemic doesn't touch.
1: And you're talking about economics and agriculture and uh, global, uh, biological and every kind of event.
2: That's right. And so exactly from the astrological to the bodily sneeze, right, to how you're sleeping, (laughs) to the words that you say to somebody else, our language changes when diseases emerge, One of the things that set me on to write about plague was the line in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, a plague on both your houses. And that when Mercutio shouts that, it would have been shouted or projects that phrase. It's a curse. And I thought at the time, not living in a pandemic time myself, we would never, ever do that with the word cancer. Mm. We would not utter that curse on the stage and hurl it into an audience So what was happening then? How would they have heard that? And we so, uh, yes, it touches every aspect of lived experience.
1: So what do you see in the writing from that period that gives us some insight and some understanding of how people coped and what they felt?
2: So coping, we see it also in so many ways, but one of the ways we see it is in their counting of plague dead using mortality bills. This was the first time that deaths were recorded and associated with a particular disease. And the people on the ground using those numbers do what we do now, which is I'm in Florida, so I'm well aware that we're looking at 9,000 deaths added to the record today. Maybe it'll be 10,000 tomorrow. It was 14,000 last week. We count to comfort. So they were also doing this counting by watching the mortality bills. And then there is the bit about why would you want to dwell in it? So you dip in and you get the facts you need so that then maybe you can go have a walk and pretend that it's, <laughs> that things are, are normal and you could forget about it or you can hug your child and count that when you wake up in the morning, everyone will, will be okay. And, and now we know also that bifurcated experience of the nightmare that we remember is still happening. Uh, even when we can have those lovely dreams of something that's not impacted by them.
1: Well, it sounds like another way they coped was uh, practical and sharing plague cures and remedies, some of which are just hilarious to read now Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in a black humor way. And and some of them show up in this book that you cite, William, is it Boleyn's or Boleyn's, A Dialogue Mm -hmm. Both Pleasant and Playful. And that that just sounds like a real find of plague writing.
2: First, what is it? Um, well, so this is a, a work written by what someone who may have been a relative of Anne Boleyn, a, and he is someone who writes essentially a morality tale at the end, tracing the the beginnings of a citizen who decides he and his wife are going to flee from London to escape the plague. He's got a lot of money, and the, the moral of the story is you can't run if God doesn't want you to run. So they, they flee London, and he still gets plague, but he's at the last instant given the opportunity by the figure of death, to turn to, to the Christian salvation, and he does that. His wife, on the other hand, a little bit like Noah's wife, who didn't want to get on the ark uh, in, mora- in mystery plays, um, his wife, on the other hand, basically says, oh no, there are all these other remedies, you don't have to turn to Christianity. Um, anyway, so it, so it winds up being a, a kind of funny <laughs> morality tale
1: so that's a morality story and a quarantine story. And there are other first-person accounts of kind of quarantine or what life was like during the plague in London that do speak to what we're experiencing now. I'm thinking of Thomas Clark. Tell us that's about That's right.
2: That's right. So Thomas Clark, um, Meditations in My Confinement, Thomas Clarke is writing in one of the last plague years in the 1660s, uh, and I mean the last plague years to come to the last time plague comes to England. He doesn't know this, of course. He takes it upon himself to quarantine him, his family. The only thing we know about him is from this poem. He mentions that at least one of his children dies. He does not discuss it in detail. But this is a, a, a work that is all poetry, highly scripted verse, shockingly poignant where, although he does not talk about the death of his children, he talks about the love of the friends that were willing to support him during his self quarantine. They didn't turn him into authorities. It seems that they probably brought him food. It is a lived experience. It's a rare glimpse into that lived experience, even though surely he wrote it after he was um, through with the self quarantine. Um, it's a, it is it's a beautiful piece. The amount of time that he spends not complaining—other writers will complain—but talking about those friends, and also he's he's very sweet. He talks about the other friends that he has that gets him through are his books, and that he returns to them many times during this when he he's got nothing else to do, and they give him solace and entertainment.
1: You mentioned that Thomas Clark didn't write about his child or children who died. And this also comes up in the plays of the time. And you you quote someone that we've had on this podcast, Barbara Traester, who points out that no dramatist in the period chose to dramatize those directly affected by plague, such as victims That's or right. survivors mourning the loss of family or friends. Right. And I wonder why, because it's not just Shakespeare who who doesn't write about the plague. You know, you tend not to see it in the theater much at all in those years.
2: That's right. And a, and a poignant, just heartbreaking example is Ben Johnson, who writes The Alchemist, um, I believe that's 1603. It's a it's a, a comedy about a lot like William Bullen's uh, Dialogue of the Fever Pestilence, where there's a city dweller in London who has the money to escape to the country, and he closes up his home and does that. The, the difference is it's a comedy because these charlatans take over the house and play tricks on the Londoners. But Ben Johnson, his son did die of plague. We know that. And he did write a gorgeous poem to his son. And his best friend died of plague, also John Rowe, and he wrote a poem for John. And um, those are heartbreakingly beautiful about um, the loss of all hope and the loss of all father, why call himself a father anymore when his best piece of poetry is what he calls his son uh, is no longer. So the heartbreak is so poignant, but yet it never makes it into his plays. And I think there's the answer. Um, it's not because there's this error out there that I think now, because of COVID-19, we can understand it's an error. Um, it's not because people got used to death you know I've heard that right. before you know five years ago I heard students would say the last you know as long as I've been teaching a literature the plague class they would say well people got used to all their kids died so they got used to death that is wrong
1: no one it's ever always, gets used to that no. yeah.
2: and the suffering and if it's your child so of course you wouldn't put it into your fiction um you might do have a private sonnet about it. Share it with your family members. But, well, that's interesting. Yeah. You just
1: said you might have a private sonnet about it. And I wonder whether, getting back to the theater, that whether this expresses more of a different attitude towards culture and entertainment. You know, there's an etiquette that you don't address this painful private part of life in your lowbrow theater or novels or right. other writings. and And now we don't have that etiquette. The lowbrow and the highbrow, they're all so mixed, and and the TMI situation is...
2: (laughs) Yeah, and you You know, know. I almost wonder if it's as much the conflation of public-private more than highbrow-lowbrow, because Mm. as you were going there, you know, and giving examples, it didn't exist in any place, really. Uh, Plague writing, I mean, writing about the death of your child wasn't something that you did. You might, again, you might hire someone to write the poem that commemorates the death of your child, but to, to share that raw pain, and we're just, with the internet, I suppose, people just do. It's the, the more the TMI, putting it out there. And also, to have done any kind of writing under those conditions, not just a text on your cell phone, not just a, but to have turned to writing and to literature, to give expression to something, um, even if you're not recording your direct experience, is an expression of hope. You don't write a poem if you don't have some hope in humanity and in the future. Oh, that's
1: really and and it's as if you're honoring that hope and that I don't even know what I don't sacrifice or just just the pain that that went so unexpressed during that time.
2: That's right. I suppose you know and I hadn't, I guess I have thought about this before but this reminds me that in an era also that had trouble because of Protestantism that had trouble doing a plague painting. You know, this is a Catholic domain is the plague painting of the saint. It's
1: right. The- In the Middle Ages, there's there's plenty of mm-hmm. art that's related to death yep. and plague painting.
2: Yep, And memorials. At the time, there was also, you know, do you make a statue to your dead one? Isn't that its own kind of icon? So maybe not. But writing then becomes that memorial. I mean, even Thomas Decker, who winds up doing very dark um, and kind of humorous scenes of ridiculous things that happen to the London citizens who flee from plague talks about, he invocates sorrow and truth. He says, all of you other muses get you gone. Sorrow and truth sit on either side of me and all of the ghosts of the thousands who have died of plague speak through my pen and let, um, the tears of the ink flow through. So, um,
0: (laughs) It's,
2: uh, It's a powerful memorial, you know, so even when he then he turns to the crasser stories, he begins with this invocation of all of those plague dead. Astounding. I don't want to
1: overlook your work on the letters and letter writing and the plague that you've done. And letters, of course, were the main way people were communicating with each other. And especially, as you said, the people who fled to the countryside to avoid the plague and there is uh, the rare plague mention in Shakespeare involving the letter that never reaches mm-hmm. Romeo because Friar John gets quarantined because of plague and fails to deliver it. So I, it just as I was reading your work, I'm thinking today we're so scared of our mail and tactile COVID transmission mm-hmm. in the mail. Were people also afraid they could get plague from letters?
2: Yeah, they were. I mean, so and I don't know. I don't know whether I, whether I should say. I don't know that they all were. In the literature, and Thomas Decker is one of the writers that does capture this fear by talking about people being concerned that the very letter that was going to bring them comfort could have their death written upon it. They thought it could be carried on air. They did see that it could be human-to-human transmitted, perhaps by breath. Um, There's a reason why the plague orders distributed throughout England in the 1570s say that once a house has been quarantined and people have died within it, then you need to burn belongings. Yes. so
1: And that's and that's how they purified letters or money in the mail, well, right? Didn't they burn it? I think that's in Daniel Defoe's Plague Your Journal.
2: Yeah, so the idea was maybe smoke it. We don't have record of this being a common thing that occurred. And really, it is just one or two mentions. So I I almost I would be more likely to put it in a category of, it's a fear that wasn't something that really changed people's practices. If you have the letter from your loved ones, your family in another city, I think you open the letter and you read it. I'm not sure you you And then you you blow a little
1: smoke on it, or or you rub Purell on it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> right. And their, their equivalent of Purell is even much more delightful than ours, which is something like lavender or some other herb, because another wonderful detail that I wish this was true is that you can only smell one. And this is this is kind of true by experience. You can only smell one thing at a time. So if you can make sure you're always smelling something good, this is the, the origin of the nosegay. Uh, if you can only smell that, then plague can't make its way through that Odor into you. Really?
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. That is really,
2: mm-hmm. que- that's really that great? an
1: interesting theory. I love that. So,
2: we have, so for example, oranges were something that people thought you smelled to an orange or a lavender or some other herbs.
1: And it literally pushes the plague out of the way. Just right, can't right. ma- make it into your nostrils.
2: That's right. That,
1: I mean, that, that, and that's something you've led me right to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is the, the theories of medicine at the time, Galenic medicine, that, mm. that there was such a close connection between your emotions and your health. And this idea that your sorrow from reading a letter about a loved one's death might make you catch
2: the plague. That's right. Am I understanding That's right. this right? That's 100% right. Which is exactly why when I thought about Mercutio's words, a plague on both your houses and the horror that that would incite, that it w- could make them more susceptible to plague. We do have lines in in, in writings that say things like, a woman was grabbed by a stranger on the street and kissed and so feared that that person had the plague that she died. Um, Your bodily constitution, right. Made you inclined to, to it or, or less so. And then, then even then that wasn't certain, you know, you could feel just like now you could feel, Oh, I got this. No problem. I'm strong. I'm healthy. (sighs) And, and they saw that that wasn't the case either.
1: So if your imagination plays such a part in making you sick, then it would seem to make sense that playwrights and poets wouldn't want to make people imagine the plague that much. I mean, it would it, it's like infecting them.
2: Yeah, and that's something, you know, I, I wonder about in some cases when we could say... The theater closings took care of that decision for playwrights. If they wanted to put the plague play on during plague time, they couldn't have anyway. So um, maybe thank goodness for yeah. everybody involved. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, right. I mean, it does get to the heart, though, of this whole topic or the background, the the, the questions in the background of this, which is what is art good for? if our imagination is so deeply connected to our physiology and this whole mind body paradox you know what are we looking for in our art and what is it what does it do for us
2: well better darn well make us sing right better <laughs> darn well be edifying and i'm i'm saying that thinking of uh, in italy the you know we all heard the the news reports about people going out onto their balconies when they were quarantined just recently with covid-19 and having concerts together, even though they couldn't be together, kind of ad hoc. It that's places the power of art.
1: Yes, it places such a huge amount of power in in art. Um, mm-hmm. You you write that one of the ways that it seems uh, writers did deal with all of this was to talk about a future when it would all be gone, basically. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a book called *Suffering in Paradise* that discusses a number of utopian books? First of all, just list some of them. Which ones did you look at?
2: So I looked at Thomas More's Utopia, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, and Margaret Cavendish's Blazing World. And these all are written over the course of about 150 years. And there are other works that I talk about as being utopian in spirit as opposed to so those three works take on imagining a world in which plague has been largely eradicated. And and other works I look at where there are steps being taken that show a utopian impulse. So, for example, plague orders that are quarantine laws and even the church prayers related to plague, I would say, are in that spirit of let's think about how we can do this differently and better now that we have some room to think about other options
1: but they did put forth best practices. For instance, um, in Bacon's mm-hmm. New Atlantis, there's a minister of health in Ben Salem. Mm-hmm. And in Thomas More's Utopia, there's a vision of clean water and a system of health care. Right. W- was he drawing directly from his experience? Because he was, um, what was he, sheriff of London at some time during Yes.
2: Plague. And he was, as part of those responsibilities, he was commissioner of the sewers. So we don't think of St. Thomas More, <laughs> who was executed by Henry VIII, as having been commissioner of the sewers. But,
1: no, uh, what didn't that guy do? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
2: exactly. In that role, he not only was in charge of uh, essentially fielding complaints and trying to make things slightly better, even as everybody was putting all of their waste right into the streets, but he also, in that role, um, he would be sent by Henry VIII ahead of the king. Uh, they would send him ahead to see whether the way was kind of clear for the king if the king wanted to travel about. England they wanted to make sure that plague wasn't in any of the spots he was going to visit. So um, and and
1: what best practices does do, do they talk about? I mean is it what well, we know now quarantine and and social distancing and washing your hands and
2: So this is interesting. So in Moore's time they they had not gotten to the point of prescribing nationwide behaviors. But in Utopia the protection is not especially helpful for us, which is well. Utopia isn't an, is an island, so the, the first thing you do is just make sure anyone who's coming to the island doesn't have it. So we are familiar with that, that mm. narrative. But, oh yeah, um, but you can't keep everybody out. But back then, you kind of could, uh, at least you, the Utopians could.
1: So they they lean into the xenophobia.
2: Yeah, and I, and it takes Queen Elizabeth the first getting contracting smallpox. And scaring her privileged counselors because she hasn't named an heir for those privy counselors to say, look, we better get a nationwide plan here to keep everybody more safe so that our queen doesn't then also get plague now that she's recovered from smallpox. And we don't want to just have to be moving her around from place to place to place. She doesn't have an heir. We want to control more other bodies than just the queens. And where
1: does religion come into this with the utopian writers?
2: Well, with the utopian writers, I suppose it's interesting. It's more in the background, and, and I and I think that that makes some sense, given that they're all the, the ones I've talked about are Protestant writers. There's a, a something of a conflation in all of the cases that the leaders of, uh, in Thomas More's Utopia, the leaders in Utopia, the leaders in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, and the leader in. Cavendish's Blazing World, who happens to be a figure for Cavendish, the author herself, um, they are all also religious leaders. So they are kind of scientists, government officials and religious leaders, just like the Protestant head of England and head of the church.
1: Okay, so how do we understand then the implications of utopian writers leaning, I guess, more on the science or medicine of the time? Mm-hmm. Do you, and not on religion. I mean, is it
2: is this the rise of humanism behind that? <laughs> there are so many ways to answer this question, but I would make it focus on the audience needs. By the time these people are writing in the 16th century and the 17th century, plague has been around in England for a couple centuries and religion hasn't worked, right? Just praying isn't making a difference. And by this time, they certainly knew that it, plague was not associated with one individual's sin. It was a disease that was being visited upon the innocent and the sinners, <laughs> the sinful alike, on the wealthy, on the not wealthy. It was indiscriminate. And so other answers were necessary. And I, and you're right about humanism because Thomas More was also someone who was a humanist and who was working with Thomas Lineker, a friend of his who studied medicine in Italy, and they helped found the College of Physicians to, to advance a more secular approach to medicine.
1: And utopian literature, that is the alternative. It's, it's thinking of the alternatives, you know, opening the, the, the big, getting beyond the box. Um, mm-hmm. Getting back to Shakespeare though, just I, we have to address this, what we hear over and over again in this time, that mm-hmm. Shakespeare, there wouldn't have been Shakespeare without the plague. And mm-hmm. and you do get to this um, you, in your writing, and you offer some support for the idea that the plague in, in 1563 to 64 may have given us the plays of William Shakespeare, and with the caveat, though, that we don't really know much of anything for sure about Shakespeare's life... Um, why don't you explain why some scholars believe this to be true?
2: Um, well, uh, so when it comes to those particular years, Park Honan is a biographer of Shakespeare who has put forward the idea that in Stratford-on-Avon, in the year of Shakespeare's birth, within 300 yards of Henley Street, where Shakespeare was born and where he was living, 300 yards away there was a family that had an apprentice and a child die of plague. So, and there were many other children that died that year in Stratford. So the people he would have grown up with, um, and the families that the family knew had losses. And so the idea that Honan puts forward is that this changes the way you perceive yourself as a human being. If you feel that there's something, you were spared, there's a survivor kind of, quality about that and then also how your parents see you how your parents may care for you and apparently mary uh his mother had had miscarriages prior to shakespeare's being born um, and that this may have inclined her to have cared for him in kind of a different more conscientious way that we would think i mean certainly is happening right now in covid19 for new moms out there Mm. So that's from the 16th, you know, the 1560s, that influence on Shakespeare. And then certainly, of course, the the larger claim about its influence on Shakespeare, about Plague's influence on Shakespeare is from those theater closings. We probably wouldn't have the sonnets or Venus and Adonis or the Rape of Lucrece at all. And, And we probably wouldn't have as many plays and we might not have as many tragedies, one after the other, after the other, written in those years when pretty much between 1603 and 1611 theaters were closed.
1: So do you imagine that someone 400 years from now will will see a lot of plate literature coming out of the early 21st century?
2: Oh sure, yeah. I just, I yes, I just don't know where they'll start. There's going to be so much, like it, you know, to your TMI comment earlier. There's so much more of it now, but I don't, I don't know. We'll we'll see. I think because you know, COVID 19 fatigue is is real. Um, we'll see what what the productivity yields. Certainly, it's got potential to be spectacular.
1: I have to ask you, how does knowing what you know about plague shape your behavior or your thinking or your reactions to COVID now?
2: You know, uh, (laughs) it makes me, sadly, it makes me calmer (laughs) and more thankful that my house is in order. (laughs) Do you know? I mean, this is, then that's a 16th, 17th, that's a 14th, 13th, 15th, 16th, 17th century way of thinking about (laughs) how to prepare for a pandemic. But my goodness, I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for my family and the love there. And those things don't have to be changed. And I suppose maybe I'll say it that way is that for us all, you know, when we think about what has not changed, what or what has gotten highlighted in really beautiful ways. And our loves do, you know, our connections to others do. You know, I was trying to
1: imagine what you might, how you might answer that question. And I wondered whether you feel the distance between the centuries melt away.
2: Oh, yes. And then everybody does. So now, you know, I could finally say my students um, in literature of the plague class, they would say, oh, it was a time of chaos. It was a time of lawlessness. And and then we already talked about, you know, when when people died, you know, they got used to it. And now they'll know. I, I don't have to say to them, it was not a time of chaos and lawlessness. It was a time of earnest reflection, doing the best you could, putting one foot in front of the other because you're doing it now. And it's may- exactly. It's no different,
1: and maybe a lot of pain and and just tremendous boredom. <laughs> mm-hmm. All all of those things. That's right. And and does it make you in the same way that you you the the distance between the centuries melts away? Does it make you feel more of a connection to your sources and to Shakespeare?
2: Yeah. You know, I I had um I was starting to have plague fatigue, <laughs> and I still now I mean I do have COVID nineteen fatigue, but I had actually been trying to get away from it. Uh, Because I thought, well, golly, you know, maybe it's time to turn to the comedies. You know, I like the comedies. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there isn't as much that's kind of deeply edifying and hopeful and powerful as that plague writing that just so I I do. I am brought right back into it's why actors love Shakespeare is that it's. Shakespeare gives you life with a capital L, right? You know, love with a capital L and yes, death with a capital D. But when you're living that life, when you're living it, it is with a capital L. It is mm-hmm. with a capital D. Loneliness, I mean, all of those things. So yes, it, it has.
1: <laughs> oh, it is. It, uh, yes, COVID f- fatigue for sure. But you've really mm-hmm. woken me out of it. Thank you so much
2: <laughs> Thank for you. talking today. it's been a pleasure talking to you it's a it's a powerful time that we can use to be inspired and flourish i mean we see that and i i would end by saying that shakespeare gave us the romances in the very end they're about resurrection right Mm. they're about reunion with our loved ones and and change so this is our chance
1: oh i wish you the best thank you so much
0: Thank you. Dr. Rebecca Totaro has written or edited 5 books. They are Meteorology and Physiology in Early Modern Culture, Representing the Plague in Early Modern England, which she wrote with Ernest B. Gilman, The Plague Epic in Early Modern England, Heroic Measures 1603 to 1721, The Plague in Print, and Suffering in Paradise, the Bubonic Plague in English Literary Studies, From Moore to Milton. Dr. Totaro is an Associate Dean and a Professor of Literature in the College of Arts and Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Twas Pretty Though a Plague, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the Associate Producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. As always, I'd like to ask, please rate and review Shakespeare Unlimited in the Apple Podcast Store. That's the best way to let people know what we're doing. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.